We don't always do it right, but one of the things that uh, you can count on us to do is we're going to do it. So we're going to wake up and practice and try to figure it out. And if it may not work today, we're going to try something different tomorrow. This is Healing Justice, a podcast bridging conversations at the intersection of collective healing and social change. I'm your host, Kate Werning, and welcome to the third installment in our series called Generation Transformation. This series is all about transformative practices in youth and intergenerational organizing and is being guest hosted by Taj James, who comes to us through the Movement Strategy Center and the Next Gen Fund. The first two weeks, we talked with a crew from the Next Gen Fund and Ellie Kuna from United We Dream about why transformational practice in youth organizing is so important and how uh, funders and people of all ages can support powerful youth leadership. Uh, The past two weeks, we heard from Chinese Progressive Association about practices in cultural humility and intergenerational organizing. And this week, we are joined by three incredible leaders from the organization called Freedom Inc. in Madison, Wisconsin. You're going to hear from Kajua Va, Zhong Mua, and Bianca Gomez. And they are doing incredible work that is multiracial, particularly in organizing the Southeast Asian and Black community in Madison, um, working with women and girls and queer and trans folks, and working to dismantle violence and abuse and enact transformative justice. And uh, one of my favorite lines from their website is their tagline is, the community is our campaign. And so I'm so excited for you to get to hear from them. Um, We are about to drop in, and the first voice that you'll hear is Taj. I'm so grateful to be uh, here in the circle with you. And we're going to start by just giving each of you a chance to introduce yourself uh, and say your name and a little bit about who you are and what's brought you here on your journey. Yes, my name is Gajua. I am a founder of Freedom Inc. and a co-director. We are Southeast Asian, Black queer, femme, gender nonconforming, trans, women and girls organization. We didn't start that way, but um, my journey into organizing and into this work really came from uh, early understanding in my lifetime around gender justice issues. Even though I didn't have a terminology for it, I understood what it felt like to be treated unjustly. And growing up in a very patriarchal family and society, I knew that the world that was created for me that I was living in wasn't one that I wanted to live in. And so even at a very young age, at like early 20s, I started thinking about what it would mean to work for myself and what it would mean to create something that other people like me wanted to be a part of. And so I came into this work my first year as an advocate And then the second year, creating Freedom Inc. out of that dream of creating a world and and an organization and a movement that I wanted to be a part of. 
And so we started as a Southeast Asian organization, uh, primarily working with Hmong uh, women and girls around gender justice and gender-based violence issues, domestic violence, sexual assault. And then as we started to do this work, we would go into the low-income housing. And in Madison, Wisconsin, you have pockets of poor communities throughout the city. And then surrounding those pockets are like really wealthy people. So one mile outside of low-income housing could be the university, one of the wealthiest in the nation. And so when we were doing this work with Hmong girls, we would go into these community centers and the black girls in the neighborhood would see that we were doing these girl-specific programming. And then they started asking, can we be part of that program? And we knew that it wasn't a good fit for them, but we also knew how to create space specifically for girls. And so we said, we may not be the leaders you're looking for because we're Hmong and we're Southeast Asians, but we know how to create this space. So why don't you join us? And we will make sure that we'll figure out how to find the leaders that you can look up to or create um, a system where you can become the leader. And so that's how the Black Girls Program uh, evolved into a Black Women and Girls Program here at Freedom Inc. The other thing was when I first started, I knew enough to know that I didn't know how to create a queer-specific space for queer identifying Southeast Asians, but I also knew that there was no other place where they could go. And so what would that look like? And so intentionally try and figure that out from the very start. And my co-director, who is Black and queer, when she came on, um, she was able to develop those programs and develop that part of Freedom, Inc. And so today we are a Black, queer, Southeast Asian, femme, women, gender nonconforming, intergenerational organization. And so my journey into this work really came from a personal place and really came from a place of trying to create something that I didn't see here in, in the Midwest. I don't know how to follow that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, okay. Uh, hi, my name is Zhong Mo. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, hers. I'm our director of youth organizing at Freedom, Inc. And I have been... With Freedom Inc. for over 10 years now, I came in as a young person, as a 16-year-old, very, very angry. I'm still angry, but <laughs> I think I know how to direct my anger now. <laughs> but just very angry at the world, angry at my family, angry at myself. And it was really through Hmong dancing, so our cultural arts, that I felt a connection, that a way for me to even communicate with other Hmong girls. I was like a 15-year-old girl just needing space and access to do this one thing that made me feel a little human, right? And we end up doing these dance practices at this community center. And it was just me and three other friends, three other Hmong girls also needing space to build outside of our families. And it just so happened that all of a sudden these little Hmong girls, like three of them were like, hey, can you teach us dancing? And we're like, yeah. And the next following weeks, we had like 20 Hmong girls. And we're like, what are we supposed to do with 20 Hmong girls? We're like 15, 16, 14. We don't even know what we're doing ourselves. And it was really through that that I got connected with Gaju and Freedom Inc. And was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And they're like, let us support you. We'll give you whatever you need. And you let us come in and just do, like, give you political education and leadership development. And we're like, 
I don't know what that means for sure. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I was like, I don't know what that means for sure. As long as you can give us some space and food, we like that. It was such like, I feel like an organic process, right? Like I was really allowed to make choices and I was allowed to make mistakes. And it was through Gajua and M's mentorship and love that really helped guide me to be in the position I am with youth leadership development because I was brought up that way. Hi, I'm Bianca Gomez. I'm one of the youth justice directors at Freedom Inc. When I reflect on like how I became part of the organization, I think two things were happening at the same time for me. One, I was navigating my own healing around being a survivor of childhood sexual violence. And it was kind of like the height of the Black Lives Matter movement. So I was a graduate student at UW-Madison at the time studying Afro-American history. And I really, I was like, where are the Black people at in Madison, like outside of campus and what are they doing? I think it was right after the verdict came out, not to charge Darren Wilson with the murder of Michael Brown in Ferguson. And I heard like this loud noise and I look out of my window and I see this like group of black people marching down State Street to the Capitol and then to the police department downtown. I just left my apartment and started following them. And that was actually the first time that I heard M. Adams speak about the injustices that were happening in Madison and in Dane County around statistics of black people being disproportionately incarcerated. I think at the time it was like black people were 5% of the population in Dane County, but 50% in the jail, right? And I started to come around and volunteer a little bit more. And they're like, we have this open position for a Black domestic violence advocate. Would you like to apply? And I was like, I'll do it if nobody else applies. And I think they like had the paperwork ready for me the next day. And I've been here ever since. So I think the beauty of Freedom Inc. is that when we think about gender-based violence, we really look at the system and how that perpetuates violence against us. If you're looking at healing ways and how to heal community, if you only look at interpersonal violence, then you forget that it has a lot of impact from systems. So white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, right? Militarism. And that we can't work on ending domestic violence without also working to end police violence. I think it's easy to talk about how people can see, oh, you guys are doing great work. But I think the lessons here are from some of the cross-racial work, some of the challenges. And so I just wanted to share, like, I think that the fact that we're Hmong, Cambodian, and Black, we respect each other enough to know that each of these communities have struggled through very different journeys very similar in that the forms of oppression are very similar, but that it looks very different and that we respect each other to say, you may need to go to church, but the Khmer folks may need to go to the temple and the Hmong folks may want a traditional healer who is a shaman. And so how do we bring these three communities together where we respect all of those practices, but at the same time, we're expecting people to practice Because one of the things that I always talk about is when people show up at Freedom Inc., if you've not done the process of decolonizing your minds, you show up with so much. And everything you do impacts everybody around you. 
And so you come in as a tornado and everything you touch gets destroyed along the way. And so one of the things I've had to learn was when I came in, like I had such possessive and abusive tendencies because that's all I knew. But I came in and trying to do gender justice work. And so how do you talk to domestic violence sexual survivors without implementing the things that you've carried with you? And so I started to think about the things that I had practiced that was harmful to other people. And that was really painful for me. I think that you two see that with the girls and the young people that you work with, right? Yeah, I think around the conversation around like people being tornadoes, us being tornadoes, right? Um, Us surviving and then also other people surviving us, right? It's, It's definitely a really hard topic. And I think one that's really hard when you have to go internal, right? And figure out like, how am I going to truly be accountable to my people, right? And around taking care of myself. And I also know like during the process for Freedom Inc., right? Being Black, us being Hmong, us being Kamai, being queer, being trans, being non-binary, being women, girls, right? Femme, that was so hard. Because I just remember like there were so many people who did leave because when it came time to do the internal work, it was just too difficult to really dig in and, and also see like, what harm am I possibly causing to my people, to the movement? And I think also like with me and my position now and also being responsible for developing other young people, it's been really hard. Like I had to also let go of young people that I have also been developing for years, right? One of the questions that always comes up with us doing our work around like leadership development and healing and transformation is how long do we keep people along? Like how long do we keep people when they continue to harm us and, and other folks um, in the movement, in our organization, in, in our membership, in our base? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think when we decided as an organization that we would no longer be in abusive relationships to community and to ourselves, I think that was when we like intentionally made these changes. We were saying, if you harm and cause domestic violence to your partner, you can no longer be in leadership with us. And actually, you can be in community. We will keep you in community if you are willing to change, but you will no longer be in leadership, number one. Number two, many of you have to do some internal work. Like if you need therapy, you got to go to therapy. If you need a shaman, you got to get a shaman. Whatever it is that you need, we will set aside resources so that you can do that. And I think one of the things that we at Freedom Inc., we don't always do it right, but one of the things that uh, you can count on us to do is we're going to do it. So we're going to wake up and practice and try to figure it out. And if it may not work today, we're going to try something different tomorrow. Uh, The other piece about letting go. In the last 20 years of doing domestic violence work, it's always been the abuser who finally leaves the victim. Like the victims always come back and always stay and we like give a seven times to leave. But what I found is a lot of these women that I've worked with, it's finally when he's cheated or he's living with somebody else or he's like made this decision to leave that she's finally like, oh, okay, now I have to figure out what to do. Right. So there's a lot of cases like that. It was like that for Freedom Inc. We had people who basically was toxic and hurting us and we were waiting for them to leave us. 
We never had a process of saying you must leave because you're causing harm. We were just saying, hopefully, I, I remember the interviews, the exit interviews, like, you know, you should do what's best for Freedom Inc. Like, really, you should leave. But I never had it in me to say you should do what's best for, for like, you should leave. And so when we decided to say you're actually going to leave, I don't care that you're my family. I don't care that you're a nephew. I don't care that we put 10 years in you. You're causing harm. And this is the new environment that we're creating for ourselves. Jean came in at a time where it wasn't that way. And we let people harm us and hurt us. And every staff meeting would take three, four hours on one person causing harm. We had to let go of people who were not willing to come with. And you were going to have to be okay that maybe your paths will meet again at the end, and maybe it won't. But to get to freedom, like if you weren't coming, I wasn't going to wait. The other piece about that is, if you want to be in community, you can. But we will put in place several things that you can't cause harm. And then on top of that, just the fact that everybody from the elders to the kids, we were literally raising generations at Freedom Inc. People would come in at six years old and never leave. We have elders who've been with us for 20 years. And so what I've learned from that is true commitment to movement and to building healthy movement was a lifetime commitment. The courage and love and leadership required to do what y'all are doing is so monumental. And I just want to appreciate all of you for being able to, to set boundaries in the way that creates safety and keeps people whole. Uh, it's the hardest thing to do. It's heartbreaking to have to tell people but they need to step out of the circle. So to be able to do that with folks that you've invested in and cared for and love and have them be a part of the community but have to step out of the circle is a really challenging piece of leadership. I think a lot about like the history of our movements and all of the cover-ups, all of the protecting like men specifically who have done harm, right? And then women in the movement come out like 20, 30 years later, like actually they are very violent in this movement, right? I think about like Freedom Meek not wanting to make those mistakes and having a very transparent accountability process and how we deal with harm. I think it's really important that we continue to hold people accountable and not use the state, right? I'm not saying called, obviously not saying use the state in any way to deal with harm. I think about our young people I see them for maybe five to six hours a week, but they go to school for 30 hours, right? So we can only do so much, but the world colonization has had such an impact on them and on us that the five hours that we get here, a lot of political education and leadership development and services that we do here isn't going to outweigh all of the systems that are in place, right? White supremacy, patriarchy, anti-Blackness, capitalism, it's hard to outweigh those things. Because if we could and if it did, all of our women would have left their partners by now. But like services and a few hours of political education around domestic violence doesn't outweigh patriarchy. We're fighting for a world where it does, but we're not in that space right now. And I think on the topic around like patriarchy and and men in the movement. I specifically think about Freedom Inc. and the way that we've interacted with boys and men around what are we going to prioritize? Who are we going to prioritize and how that's going to look like? 
late last year, we actually ended our Southeast Asian boys programming. And I know that that was a very difficult and heated conversation. But it was a conversation that we really had to do. How, as a women-led organization, that leadership development of like boys and men, it's going to fall back on like the labor of women, right? <laughs> and how tiring that that could can be and could be, right? And and I just also remember while doing that, I thought so much like, oh my gosh, as I'm mentoring this young boy, right, who's freshly out of high school, um, how difficult it is, how much more work I have to put in it when I could have been mentoring like five other Hmong girls. Um, and just how emotionally drained I was every day. And then um, on top of that, having to really address like the stuff that was coming up around like sexism, around sexual violence and harassment, and specifically um, around anti-blackness and the sexualization of like black women and girls and how our Southeast Asian men and boys were perpetuating that. And as the Southeast Asian women in the organization, how are we also going to hold our Southeast Asian men and boys accountable and at the same time, like, really protect these, the Black women and girls in our organization and fix that whatever harm that has been caused was definitely difficult. And part of that was really us saying, like, we're going to let you go. You actually don't have a space here. We're prioritizing women and girls. We And at the core of our work, it is really around centering and protecting Black women and girls and Black trans and queer folks. And I do feel like in our movement work, as we're really talking about, like, alternatives and reimagining the new world, is that it can't just live in our heads. We actually have to practice it. And I feel like Freedom Inc. does a really good job at practicing that, right? We think about these great alternatives, these practices, and then we actually do it. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But that's the only way we will know if we're actually, if that vision is correct for, for our people, for our movement. So what Zhong's talking about is we had this young kid who came to Freedom Inc. as six years old, pretty much. He brought his mama to the organization. He brought his aunties to the organization. And we had been pouring into him for almost 10, 15 years. And then he participated in some violence against black girls. And so we're sitting here saying, we've been pouring into you. How could you do this? And it was heartbreaking because then we realized what Bianca says. We had the five, six hours with you every week, but the community and the society had hundreds of hours with you. And that we realized like we couldn't compete. And so when is it that we've done enough and what are we responsible for as a feminist organization into cultivating these men and boys who won't harm us? 
we're at this point where we're having this conversation. And it can't just be that we allow Southeast Asian men and boys into Freedom Inc., but not the black boys and men. And so then we're also struggling with what does anti-blackness look like? Does it look like young boys and men's programs can evolve around us, but we don't have any space for black men and boys? And so these are the hard conversations that we're having. And what do movements have to put in place to protect the people that we're harming without intentionally harming, but because of patriarchy, because of anti-blackness, because of racism, because of all of these things that have been put into place to oppress people, what does an organization like Freedom Inc., what is our responsibility in the movement to protect each other from each other until we get it right? And so one of the things that we're practicing and trying to figure out at Freedom Inc. is our Asian anti-Blackness. Like Asian people are anti-Black and we've been trained this way, wired this way. And so one of the things that Em and I, my co-director and I recently had is like, If you're practicing certain things that you don't mean to harm us, but it's harming us, like you need to look at that and you need to figure out what you're going to put in place until you guys figure it out, number one. And then I also told Em, like, I don't know how to do it right, but I can promise you that I will wake up every day trying to do it again and again and again until I get it right. And so with men in patriarchy, like you got to wake up and dismantle that system. Yeah. So I really think about these things. It's like like you all are saying, we just have to keep practicing. One of the things that we decided for healing practices was when I figured out what a sabbatical was and what it did for me, like I'm like, everybody should have a sabbatical. <laughs> and so uh, we were lucky enough that one of our funders said, let me give you a small pot of money and you and M focus on your health. And we realized what that small amount was able to do for us. And we said, let's practice that with the rest of the staff and see what happens. And say, okay, what are you going to do with this $1,000? And how do you want to create your own health? I think around practicing transformative justice and healing internally, like the requirement that all of us have to go to therapy. A lot of us are survivors of domestic violence and sexual violence. And then having to help advocate for people, that's often re-traumatizing working with young people who are the same age when I was sexually assaulted and just dealing with like anti-Blackness, like that takes a toll on you, right? It's not enough to just tell somebody to go to therapy when therapy is expensive. People have to go through insurance and all of that. So Freedom Inc. provides the resources for folks to go to therapy. And then a concrete example in thinking about how we practice restorative justice and transformative justice, we talked a lot about letting people go. But I want to like reiterate that those people were let go after like 10 years of being in the organization, right? You don't just mess up one time, right? And then you're like out of the organization. That's not realistic, right? So I think of an example of one of our young people who multiple times they were stealing from other people within the organization. And if we would have just said, hey, you're stealing, we're going to kick you out of the organization, they would have been homeless. They wouldn't have gotten a paycheck. They wouldn't have been able to eat. They wouldn't have gotten any leadership development skills, right? So instead, we made them pay that person back. But also, we're like, okay, how can we help you find housing? How can we help you find food? How can we help you get the resources that you need? And it wasn't the first time that they have, and it wasn't the last time that they had taken stuff. But again, 
transformative justice takes a really, really, really long time. And that's why it's really hard for people to commit to. And it's so much easier to often do the punitive thing. Hey, everybody, it's Kate, your host here at the podcast. I'm just dropping in to give you a little bit of a fuller welcome and orientation to the resources that we offer here um, in companionship with this series and always in case you're new to this space. So our format for the show is that we offer conversation episodes like the one you're listening to now. And then we also offer practice episodes like what you'll hear next week when Freedom Inc. shares some really practical tips with us about how they build in organizational systems that, uh, as they say, protect each other from each other as we're learning. And so what are their systems around racial justice, gender justice, age discrimination, right? Looking out for young people. What are the structural systems they've put in place so that as we are all in our own political development and personal growth in our commitment to anti-oppression, that our organizations are not reifying oppressive structures and that we have room to learn and grow together and not be there yet to keep on showing up until we get it right, as Kajwa says. Um, but also protect people in the process that we're not like learning all over each other and harming each other as we're learning, right? So next week, you'll hear the practice episode from Freedom Inc. And you can check out our whole library of conversations and practical practices, everything from uh, meditations for activists to uh, conflict facilitation exercises to uh activities that help you write songs that you can sing uh, in the streets at your direct actions, tons of practices for embodied organizing. Um, you can see our whole catalog at healingjustice.org podcast. We also want to recommend that you check out this incredible book uh, during this series that we're focused on supporting young people's leadership. We're reading a companion book that is super awesome. It's an oldie but goodie from AK Press, and it's called Stay Solid. And we're recommending this book because it is a handbook for youth organizers and young leaders. Most of the book is political education and how-to around organizing practice. And it's a big book with essays from tons of people, many of the people that you love that have been on this show, such as Adrienne Marie Brown. And it's broken up into digestible sections. And so, This is an awesome uh, book to read if you work with young people or it's a good gift for a young person. Um, And so if you want to pick up a copy of Stay Solid, go to akpress.org and you can use the code podcast to get 15% off if you pick up a copy of Stay Solid or any other book on akpress.org. We love AK Press. They're a movement publisher. They're an anarchist collective. Um, So please support them instead of going to Amazon. And if you want to find people to discuss the book with, uh, go ahead and join our book club. We have a book club level on our Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash healing justice, 
You can see that membership level along with many others. And by becoming a member and helping us sustain this work, you can join our discussion forum. You can access the map where you can see listeners and other book club members across the country who have um, plotted their points on the map and, uh, and have said, reach out to me if you want to get together and read or have a discussion, right? So if you want to join a book club, you can go to patreon.com slash healing justice. So now we're going to drop back in on the conversation with Kajwa, Taj, Zhong, and Bianca. As I was sitting and reflecting on what you were sharing, a couple things came up for me about how you are developing solutions from a place of real lived experience and from the highest commitment for gender justice principles. What you're articulating that feels so powerful about how violence plays out in every aspect of our lives, not just in the, the systems that impact us in our housing or in our neighborhoods or schools, but how that violence gets internalized, how it plays out in our families and our personal relationships. And one of the things that we've been learning in the Next Gen Fund as we've been partnering with you and other folks working with young people around the country is that when people do work in this way, when the people who are most impacted approach the work thinking about systems, sort of what the police are doing, what's happening with our elders, do our elders have food, why are there big tiles of trash in our neighborhood, and ask the questions about what can be done. Because you're doing this intensive inside-out healing work, what's different about the kinds of solutions you generate or think about when you, when you look at the policy and systems change work? It allows you to redirect your anger in the right places, right? So instead of taking it out on other Black women or other people in my community, I can target the right people who cause the harm, right? I can target the colonizers and people who are upholding white supremacy instead of my sisters. Yeah, I mean, I can talk about that too. I think some of the policies and campaigns that you two have been running, like the Cops Out of School, is about projecting out and is about organizing against these systems that have not been healthy against us. So I think that is a really great example. The way that we work is we provide direct services as a way for people to enter because we know that the population we work with actually needs some basic human needs met. Shoes in the wintertime, food, health care, like all of these things. And so we're not a traditional organizing organization. We provide direct services, and then we provide advocacy. And then we have this pipeline of building leaders from our base. And so when I talk about investing in people and leadership, people come in and they stay and then we develop them and then they become one of our directors or they become one of our main organizers. We actually did this campaign a while ago and we looked at land and we said, what is access to land and how can that be a health campaign for us? And for the Southeast Asian folks, they're like, we want access to land to grow food. And the black population here was like, we want access to land for affordable housing. And so we really looked at that and said, that's what it means to be healthy for our community members. And we said, we're going to organize then. We're going to organize to create more community gardens where elders and people with disability and people who can walk there and people can own this land and be like, we're going to grow food so we don't have to buy anymore. During this time, it was during the foreclosure bubble bust era, we moved homeless families into homes that were abandoned by banks and homeowners. And that was one of the ways that we 
we were able to create some kind of health justice for our people. Yeah. But I think like caps in school is a health hazard to black girls, right? How do you two see that as a health justice campaign? Well, I think about like the sexual violence that happens to black girls and like patriarchy being a part of our homes, but also being like mainly a part of institutions. So we've been working with other organizations that have really been talking about all of the ways that sexual violence happens in schools and the people who have power and people who we aren't able to hold accountable, like police do the most types of sexual violence, right? So it may not be rape, right? It may not be the most extreme forms of sexual violence, but it is the commenting on clothes, right? It is the commenting on body shapes. It is the grooming things that lead to very direct sexual violence and very direct harm to young Black girls, especially who we see as sexual objects, who we see as promiscuous. When we do the gender justice work around talking about how society sees Black girls, right? I've seen a lot of our girls like having aha moments, like, damn, I should be able to wear these shorts and nobody should be able to say anything to me, right? So like body autonomy, right? And I have seen a transformation when they're like, oh, girls don't deserve to be sexually assaulted or it's not her fault that she was talking to a 30-year-old. Like they can recognize signs of grooming. They can recognize like, oh, this police officer shouldn't have commented on the length of my shorts. And I think They've done healing work within themselves and the way that they interact with each other as Black girls, but they can also then recognize when they're being harmed by school personnel, by police officers, by security guards within those institutions. So you provided a very full, nourishing, and and rich plate of, of story and meaning in this conversation. And there are two things that are really sitting with me. I'm really present to what it means for this one community that didn't really have a lot materially, got together in a parking lot with girls and young women there and and just started with the question, what can we do for our young people? And then when other folks started showing up, when African-American girls started showing up, you were like, hey, how can we build something together? And that, that spirited ethic that we have a responsibility to ourselves and to our own community, but our doors open, like we are a bigger family who are really facing unique and common struggles. And what I'm also really getting a sense of is that sort of you all take so seriously this responsibility for addressing lots of trauma and harm, none of which you had any part of creating. And as you were sort of tackling these struggles and challenges as an organization committed in particular to the well-being of, of young girls and women and queer and trans folks, you've also taken responsibility for the human development of the cisgender young men in your community. You saw the need and you took it on. And as you talked about the heartbreak in that process, I kept thinking, who are the people who need to step up and take more responsibility in this? You know, Are there people in our movements, in our communities, in our organizations that you want to call into their responsibility? Because y'all are holding a lot. And it makes me wonder what it would look like if there were other folks who stepped into the responsibility with you. So just wondered if you had any reflections on that. Yeah, it, it's a lot of holding. What people don't understand about organizing in the Midwest is that we don't have a lot of luxury to just be siloed into our own community. And so as a young adult, like that was something that I was very cautious and, and conscious about. And so while trying to figure out how to liberate myself 
and liberate my community, I knew that in the Midwest, we just didn't have the numbers. And I knew that in Madison, we didn't have the numbers. So I knew that um, it was important to build solidarity with other struggling communities. And it just so happened to be the black community in Madison because we were really settled in these poor black communities. And so while we went to school and never spoke to each other, when we came home, we knew we lived next door to each other. And so our grandmothers and uh, mothers would look out for each other, but then we would go to school and pretend like we didn't know each other. So this was an opportunity, and, and I saw it very clearly that we're different, but we're struggling with the same stuff. And being Southeast Asian and being heavily policed in the same neighborhoods that black people were heavily policed, some of the uh, the uh, policies that were put in place to criminalize black people actually criminalized my own my people too. And so I saw that from a very young age. And so even though I didn't know a lot, I knew enough that I could not build a freedom movement for myself without also being in solidarity with people that I saw that was also trying to be free. And so I think that that's really important for people to understand that the Midwest is just a different organizing slate. And so we need to be in solidarity with other people of color. And it just so happened for Freedom Inc. that it was a Black and Southeast Asian solidarity movement. The piece around calling people in, for a long time, I felt a responsibility to creating healthier boys and I knew the men we couldn't do because we used to hire gay men. And the first day they would come into our organization and tell us after we've been doing this work for 15 years, tell us exactly what was wrong with our organization. So we quickly said, okay, no more gay men or men period at our agency because we just don't have the skill set to like fend them off because it's just too toxic. And then, but we said, but boys, we as mothers and aunties and grandmothers have the responsibility to make sure that these boys are raised well. And what we found about that is, well, you're absolutely right. This question about who else needs to be at the table because it can't just be feminine women and, and queer folks doing all the labor, emotional labor and raising healthy community members, right? So I feel like at this point, who else do we call in? Like, men, get your shit together. Like, do some emotional labor. Geesh, figure out something and like pitch in. Um, and, you know, the other piece that I wanted to add in here, which is a story that I think that that most femme and mothers and people who have internalized patriarchy, like myself, I was part of the big problem and still am a big problem as to why Freedom Inc. isn't fully free from patriarchy. It's because I have internalized a lot of motherly, like loving, emotional labor for everybody, including boys and men. And so I feel like I need to call myself out from that place. And we need healthier men and boys to take up some of this load. Don't you think? I'm always very careful when critiquing the Black family. I mean, there's just a history of deficit framing around Black families in order to like maintain anti-Blackness, in order to justify the violence that happens in Black communities. Like they said that like, Black people don't care about their children. So when Emmett Till died, they wouldn't give his mother the insurance money, right? Because she was happy that he's dead. So she can get the check. Like all of the things that are perpetuated about Black families. I'm always very careful about 
critiquing those things outwardly where people who can do harm to us will have access to it. But the reality is that there is a lot of violence in a lot of our homes and a lot of that stemming from patriarchal dynamics and the things that we internalize and perpetuate onto our children, onto our boys. I'm also thinking a lot about my mother and there aren't a lot of healthy spaces for parents to take accountability or to like get education because black families are always like, am I being critiqued? Social services are always in our house snatching our kids away for hundreds of thousands of dollars, like making money off of like the foster care system and separating black families, separating children, incarcerating parents, men, women, queer for like, you know, there's like there's so much invested in destroying black communities that there aren't enough safe spaces for people to ask for help. Like even my grandma who didn't really know how to hold my mom accountable for anything, just like, okay, let me call social services, right? But what would it have meant for my mom to have a healthy place to be like, I don't quite know what I'm doing, right? I'm surviving all of this harm and violence in my house. My kids are surviving harm. Like, who can help me that is not the state? Who can help me that's not going to make me lose my job, going to make me lose my kids, going to make me look like a bad parent, going to perpetuate all of these things about Black motherhood? Who can help me with that? So I think we need more spaces for parents to ask for help and to say it's okay and to call them in because ripping their kids away from them a lot of times is just not any better than the violence they're experiencing. I feel like we're doing some of that with the folks that we work with now, but I think organizationally around the nation, we need more safe spaces for families to get support without shaming them, without involving the state. It's so clear that creating healthy space and healthy spaces and healing spaces is so central to your your praxis and your practice. So I'm curious, as you think about how you create those healthy healing spaces inside your organization and community, what are you dreaming about and excited for when the young people think about what their community looks like 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, and the impact that you're having on transforming the spaces outside of the organization so they more reflect the dignity and love that you all are building together in the circles that you create. Any reflections you have on that and and any vision that's emerging out of your work and out of the young people's practice? I don't I don't know that this is Freedom Mink's role, but I would definitely would love to see healing spaces for men, right? I think about black men in particular that have been through a lot of violence, right? From the state, from their community. Like what would it look like for healthy healing spaces for them to really talk about some of the things that they can't really talk about, right? They can't really talk about the violences that happens because they have to be strong. They have to be leaders. So what would it look like for healthy healing spaces for men, for Black men in particular? Gosh, so (laughs) I believe I'm coming into terms with the fact that I'm always going to be struggling with this question around like, what is the big vision? What is it that I want to see in 10 years? Because it's always going to be changing. I don't know. I think I just know how I would want it to feel like. And it's definitely wanting women, girls, and queer and trans folks to be able to move freely in the world, in the body that they are in, in the body that they want to be in, to, to really be at peace with our bodies, to no longer feel violence towards our bodies. 
I think that's that's really what I envision and hope for. And also, a little something just to throw out there <laughs> is that 10 years from now, right? 10, 20, 50 years from now, I hope that we as a movement are no longer asking like, how do I show up as Asian people? How do I show up for the Black community? I hope that that's no longer the question anymore that we would know how to show up for each other because we would actually be building with each other, not in times of crisis, but just actually building with each other so that we know that we show up like how we show up for family because we would see each other as family. I actually really believe that it can be done. I feel like every day when I come in with you all, and I've, I've said this, like, even if I don't get it right today, like, I'm going to come back tomorrow. I'm going to try to figure it out. And I'm going to make it right tomorrow. And so I actually believe and am very hopeful that we can actually create a world that we actually want to live in. And so what does a healthy community look like for me in the next 10 years? I've always believed when those who are most impacted, most oppressed, does well, the rest of us will be okay. When poor people are okay, we'll be okay. When queer and femme and gender nonconforming and trans people are okay, then we're going to be okay. When black people are okay, Asian people will be okay. I've never felt like fighting for people who were different or people who were more oppressed wasn't fighting for me. And so with that mindset, I'm like really hopeful because I feel like at Freedom Inc., like I'm saying, People may not believe this, but I actually believe that we can create a world that we actually want to live in and that we want to be a part of. So that's what healthy communities look like for me. That's so beautiful. As you were all sharing, what I was struck by is that any circle of people who's asking themselves the question you named, what are we practicing today and how do we practice it more powerfully tomorrow and how do we center the folks who most need to be centered in what we do. And anytime that commitment and that practice is present in a circle, uh, that is a circle of great hope and possibility. It makes me feel like the future is so close. The future is here. That we're always going to be continuing to learn and struggle and grow and make mistakes and be human. That work's never gonna be complete as you're articulating so powerfully. But if we keep showing up for it, there's so much that's possible and I'm just, moved and encouraged and excited by the offering of your practice and the wisdom that you're generating from it. And so this last bit of time we have, just want to see if there's anything else you want to share. I want you two to know that the love for Black girls and for Hmong girls, the way that you two have moved in building their leadership and building their confidence, I want you to know like it makes a difference. Like I see how they move differently and I think that's the healing piece that I see for your girls and for your community to let black teen girls to be like, I can wear whatever and it's not my problem that you're objectifying me. Like you're actually the problem. And I feel like, Bianca, you have really done such an amazing job. And like what an amazing thing to do to transform a young person's ideology of who's problematic. I think that's really healing. I've seen that with your girls, and I think that's amazing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I agree with that. And I just want to add, because you just remind me around, like, a lot of the conversations that I have with my girls and something that they're always like, but I, I do that already. I can do that, right? And it's like, 
these things that they're talking about are like very adult things, right? Like a lot of responsibilities. And they feel like since they're doing it at home or in the communities, they can take on these responsibilities, like these adult big responsibilities, such as like, I can be left alone with all these kids, but it's like, you're also a child. Or it'd be like, you know, I can go clubbing or I can drink or I can, you know, all these, just like all these very adult things. And I always tell them like, okay, yes, like you may have been doing that for the last couple of years, but while you're here with me in this space, you get a chance to be a kid. You get a chance to feel what it means to have a childhood. So I always remind them that, really reassuring them, like in this space, you get to ask whatever questions you want. Play, you get to play. I think it's the biggest thing is like they don't get to play. And us allowing them that space and being very vocal about that has been very powerful, I think, around like trusting us around like healing and trusting us around like safety and security and being able to like go along this journey around transformation. You just made me think about a few things. I think the first thing is that so many of us have like such a deficit framing around young people, right? They need to learn how to behave. They need to be, even within our movement and leadership and all of that, like we need to teach them these skills. We need to pour into them, but it's not a two-way process. I feel like our model of organizing is giving young people the skills and then moving out of their way. So like letting them lead just like not loosely, obviously, we always look to our elders for wisdom and guidance and support, but sometimes we just need to move out of the way. And then the other thing that I was thinking about is like accountability and discipline. And a lot of my girls were like, when they came in, they were used to people yelling at them. They're used to being suspended when they did something wrong. So they thought I was being too nice, right? When I'm like, I'm not going to yell at you. You're not suspended. You're not like kicked out of the group, right? They thought I was soft, right? They didn't see it as another form of accountability. And it's like, you're used to somebody harming you when you've done harm, right? And that's not the way that we approach accountability here. So it took them a long time to transition and understand that like, I'm still mad, but I'm not going to call you like I'm not going to call you stupid or I'm not going to call you bad. Right. That is not the way that we approach addressing harm here. Yeah, it took a while for them to get that. I just want to say thank you a lot to Gajua, right, because you did this, you made this happen. Like, I really think about the story of Freedom Inc. and, and what you've done, like at this parking lot of this very poor Black Southeast Asian neighborhood and what you have done and transformed for the community and how much you have believed in me as a young person. And I really thank you a lot for that and, and really believing that I can transform because I know I was not easy at all, <laughs> right? I've heard the stories. <laughs> really believing that I can transform and loving me even when it was difficult to love me right and believing in me when I didn't even believe in myself right and holding hope for me when I didn't have hope for myself means a lot being a woman being femme being queer right and being very poor and just having someone believe in you and that you can change meant the world so thank you just want to thank you all for allowing me to be a part of this circle it was a real honor. The love that you have for each other and for your community and the courage 
that you bring to what you do every day is, is deeply powerful and moving. Um, and the waves and the ripples of your work are spreading far and wide. So thank you for letting me be a part of this. I learned a lot and uh, I'm definitely moved to reflect and think more deeply about my responsibilities and how I'm holding them and how I can better be a partner to those who are doing the important work you're leading in the communities that I'm a part of. So thank you. Enormous thanks to the crew at Freedom Inc., especially Kajwa, Bianca, and Zhong, for sharing your powerful words and reflections this week. We are so looking forward to listening to the practice, the episode right after this one, to dive in a little bit deeper on what are some of the organizational practices that are used at Freedom Inc. to protect each other from each other as we learn right? What are some of the accountability practices, some of the ways that they prioritize healing and um, culturally appropriate healing and self-determined healing and transformative justice and so many of the experiments that they have learned uh, in organizing for 15 plus years in their community of organizational practices that work to really bridge in a multiracial, multi-generational, uh, multi-gender organization. And so really looking forward to that practice next week. If you want to make sure not to miss it, there are two ways to do that. One is to subscribe in whatever podcast app you're listening. While you're doing that, please give us a five-star rating and review if you would be so kind. It helps more people who need to find this resource discover it. And we also invite you to join our email list at healingjustice.org. In December of 2019, this project is going to be changing its name. We've been in a long uh, community conversation and accountability process around um, really ensuring that we can honor the lineage of healing justice. And so for that reason, we're changing the name of this project to make space Um, for that lineage to remain very clear. And so we'll be changing the name soon and we don't want to lose touch with you. So please join our email list at healingjustice.org so that when we change the name, we can send you a note and you can find us under our new name. It's really cool. I think you're really going to like it. So join our email list and uh, stay along the journey with us. Again, a reminder that if you're picking up a copy of Stay Solid, a radical handbook for youth, you can find that at akpress.org and use the word podcast to get 15% off your purchase. And you can see the show notes from this episode, read the full transcript. We have transcripts for every single one of our episodes by going to healingjustice.org generation. And you can see the whole series there. A big thank you to our producer, Jale Akavan, for editing this episode, and to Zach Meyer at The Coal Room for sound mastering. Thank you to each of you for being here and your commitment to bridging divides, bridging culture, bridging age, bridging gender, bridging experience, right? Um, Thank you for all of the work that you're doing to grow in accountability, to grow in a commitment to keep showing up as we do this work and grow together. 
It's a pleasure to be in this work with y'all and we'll hear you next week.